There's an old legend about a swan and a crane. Well, one day the, uh, from the distant skies, a swan comes um, a light from the, the heavens, it seems, and lands by a nearby pond. And uh, as it lands by the pond, there's a crane that is rigorously going backwards and forwards, digging uh, for snails. And as it's digging for snails, the swan says, what are you doing? And the crane replies, I'm just digging for snails. He goes, well, that's an amazing thing. And he goes, uh, is that all you've been doing today? Yeah, I'm just digging for snails. And which the crane then looks at the swan and says, what are you doing? Where are you from? And the swan says, well, I'm from heaven. And it's an amazing place. You ever heard of heaven? And which the crane replies, what's heaven? He says, you don't know what heaven is? He goes, no, I guess I don't really know what heaven is. Or he goes, well, heaven is a splendorous place. Like it's, it's an amazing place where God exists. It's the abode, the dwelling place of God in the heavens. And he goes, okay. He goes, no, no, like you don't understand. He goes, like it's, it's an amazing place. He goes, it's, it's a place where there's streets of gold and there's a crystal sea, like the sea is like glass. And he goes, and even its, it's, even it's foundations are, are like 12 pillars, and then there's 12 gates, and the gates are guarded by angels, and it's amazing, amazing things. There's jasper, and carnelian, and onyx, and chrysolite, and so many other stones and features there. He goes, it's so spectacular. He goes, and I haven't even told you about the, tr- the tree of life, the tree of life which yields its, its fruit, and its leaves in various stages and seasons, and every month another fruit. He goes, I I don't know what to tell you. He goes, let me ask you this. Are are there snails there? And which the swan says, snails? What do you you need snails for? Like there's far more than snails. And which the crane then replies, if there's no snails, I'm not interested in your heaven. And how many of us live as if our hope is in our current world? How many of us live as if we're just needing one more day's worth of snails? Well, today we're going to be exploring a truth that we discovered last week a little further. Last week, I shared this phrase with you, and Cody shared this in Edgewood uh, with our campus there. And it simply is this, heaven today is not what it was, and it's not what it will be. Now, if you're joining us today and you look at that phrase, you might be a little bit confused. Last week, we talked about what heaven was and what it is today. And today, we want to explore further what will heaven be. And as we think about what heaven will be, I think we could just title today's message this, a return to Eden. A return to Eden. I think as we explore further truth today, we're going to see the heaven that is going to be promised. The one that John, the beloved disciple, tells us about in the book of Revelation is one that in many ways will return us to the very things that Adam and Eve enjoyed before sin wrecked and destroyed the very first heaven. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And I'm going to ask you to do two things at once. As you're turning to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, I want to also give a shout out and a welcome to our Edgewood campus. So, woo, go ahead. Uh, Edgewood, we're so glad that you're hanging out with us today. And uh, we look forward to what we're going to learn from today's message 
And we're going to begin in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And let me just give you fair warning. One is we're going to be in Revelation 21 and 22 for the bulk of our time. Uh, But we'll flip around to various places and stages. But I will give you fair warning number two is that as we explore the topic of the new heaven and the new earth, you have to be paying careful attention or you probably will be lost in some of the information. And so do everything you can to hang with me. John, um, the beloved disciple, writes in the book of Revelation, beginning in Revelation 21 verse 1, that he saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, when you see the words new there, it's the word kainos in the Greek, which literally means new. Everybody say new. New. Okay, now here's the deal. You've got a Greek word today that you can also learn, kainos. Now, when you see the word new, you think, okay, it is new, but it actually has a variety of other forms. It's used 44 times in the New Testament. And one of the forms that you would see is, is unused. It's like Joseph of Arimathea. If you remember, he gave his unused tomb to Jesus. That's a form of the word. Another way that we oftentimes will see it is if there is something new in us. Uh, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, you see a passage of scripture that is one that we oftentimes say around here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, I'll put it for you up on the screen so you can see it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a yeah, kainos. He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so as John is writing in Revelation chapter 21, he sees a new heaven and a new earth. He's saying, hey, I, I see one that's new, one that the old things have passed away. He goes on and he says, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So he says, the new heaven Uh, the one in which we will experience, and chronologically in our Bible, we're not there yet, but it's to come. He goes, it's going to be entirely new. It's going to be different. For the first earth will have passed away. And then he says something very interesting at the very end of that verse, and the sea was no more. Now that very sentence there is certainly intriguing, and it's one that we suppose if John is telling us is that Three quarters of our earth and its makeup today, which is water, will be no more. So right now, 71% of our world are just seas. That's not taking into account um, rivers and lakes. That's just oceans. And so as a result of that, our earth will change drastically according to what John sees. Now, what is also interesting is is that you're going to see as John continues that it's not just that there's going to be no more seas, but there's going to be no more of several other things. He lists six other things that we'll see here in a few moments. One is in this same chapter, beginning in verse four, there's going to be no more death or mourning or weeping or pain. So those are things that won't exist in the new heaven and new earth that exist now. If you continue on in chapter 22 and verse three, you could just make you a quick note of it, but the curse, which is sin, will be no more. And then in chapter 21 verse 25 and 22 verse 5, you see also that there will be no more night. So in the new heaven and the new earth, you're going to see several new things. For the old order of things has passed away. Now what's interesting though is that just as I showed you 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 a second ago, what is true about us, I believe, can also be true about the earth. For instance, let me show you 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 one more time and see if you catch what I caught. Here it is. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new kinos. 
Because the old has passed away and the new has come. The question that you have to ask yourself is this. What kind of work did Jesus do in us? And what things did he do away with to make you a new creation? Are you altogether completely new? And the reality is, is you can look in the mirror and go, well, no, not yet. And so what is it that he did? He did a redemptive work in our life and he made us new, aspects of us new. Are there things that we still carry with us that are not new? Yes. Which then begs the question, and I think it's a very important one, and we'll spend a little bit of time here, is when John says, I see a new heaven and a new earth for the former things have passed away, the question you got to ask yourself, will it be completely new? Or will it be restored? Well, here's the answer. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Let me show you a couple of things that you do um, with Scripture. So when you've got a question in Scripture, you want to begin to dive into other Scriptures to see if you can find the answer. And I wanted to show you two Scriptures, pretty good passages, but I want you to pay careful attention to them because I want you to see what they say and in some ways why they might conflict. And so here, here we go. Um, Peter writes this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13 about the new heaven and the new earth. And really around the day of the Lord, about preparing for Jesus' return. He says this, But the day of the Lord, beginning in verse 10, will come like a thief. It's going to come quickly. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? Really, what you've got there is more questions than answers. So at the end, everything's going to burn up. Even even these heavenly bodies will be burned up. The question is, what does that even mean? Well, the reality is, is things that aren't lasting are going to be burned up in the end. So you want to be making sure that you're a part of things that are lasting. He even goes on, he says, what sort of people ought to be the lives of holiness and godliness that are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter says, listen, we are to be the type of people who our eyes are set on the things to come in which we know there's going to be something new, uniquely different than what there is today. Matter of fact, what we have today is going to be burned up in the end and we can wait for a place where righteousness dwells. Because the earth that we live in now, we certainly know is not a place where righteousness dwells as often as it should. We agree with that? And so it seems like in this particular passage, that when John says new heavens and new earth for the older things have passed away, it seems as if the older things are going to be what? Dissolved. You agree with that? Just from what we read? Okay, now then you've got a passage that Paul writes, which seems to be in a kind of an inconspicuous place in Romans chapter 8. Look what he says in verses 18 through 23. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, which is true. He goes, I look at my life now and I know that, that what, I'm, what I'm struggling with, these dark valleys, this anxiousness, this fretting, this worry, this striving, this unrest, he goes, I know this is not going to compare to the future glory, which is why we long 
for a new heaven and a new earth, right? Because we, we want these things to be gone. But he goes on and he says this, for the creation, verse 19, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Not just us, but creation. Rocks and birds and trees and reptiles and every moving thing all along the ground. They wait with anticipation, right? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, uh, willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Which the idea that Paul says is now even the earth groans and they had no part of sin. So as a result of the condemnation of sin, judgment comes Adam and Eve in the first heaven enjoy fellowship with God and they commune with him and they enjoy what? The birds of the air and the fish of the sea and they rule over and every, everything is subduing to them. They also, what? They pick fruit and they harvest things without thorns and thistles, but then sin changed it all. And when it changed, it didn't just corrupt them, but it also corrupted the earth. Matter of fact, the creation itself will be set free from this bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What does that mean? And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first roots of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons and the redemption of our bodies. So just as we long as a new creation, to put off the old former things and we long for a heavenly dwelling, Paul says it seems to be a redemptive groan that even the earth has as well. Which then begs the question, okay, if the earth is going to be made new and the heavens are made new and the old things pass away, then does it pass away completely or pass away partially? What do you think? You have an answer in your mind? Go ahead and just kind of just derive a conclusion, an answer in your mind. One passage seems to say everything burns up. Another passage seems to be a groaning for some redemptive quality. Well, let me just kind of give you um, a little glimpse into my mind, okay? Um, this isn't worth a nickel, uh, but it maybe it entertains you to some degree. Now, listen, there's a lot of debate among trusted scholars and commentators and lots of th things. At the end of the day, you and I can't merely trust um, someone we don't know or read commentation on. So you have to com come to a place where you form your own conclusion. This is my conclusion, and I'm going to show you how I get there. When you think about God, you have to ask yourself, what is one of his most incredible qualities. Now, I think holiness, okay? But then after holiness, what do you think of? I think about the redemptive nature of God. I think about who he is in terms of reconciliation. Matter of fact, in that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, not only are we new creations, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come, but we are also called to be ministers of reconciliation, we are to enter into dark places and spaces in order for God to bring about light and hope and joy. Uh, we are to see what is broken down and in disrepair. And we are to ask God and even join him in a work of renovation. That's who God I see in the Bible is. He is a redemptive working God. How many of you in this room are thankful that God restores what was once old and makes it new? 
Yes. And so that's why we gather here. Well, I see that throughout the Bible. Matter of fact, when you think about just the redemptive nature of God and you kind of begin to follow this idea, you see a God who recreates. And not only does he recreate, he recreates because he was the creator. Uh, Think about John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, the beloved disciple says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the Word is in reference to Jesus. And he says he was and has always been. He's the Alpha and the Omega. So beginning from time, Jesus has always existed. Shake your head yes if you agree with that, okay? Um, I was just checking Edgewood more than anything. Um, if, 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 if that's in fact who God is, he is a creating God, and, and he's been with God from the very beginning, then the question is, is what, what was his act in creation? Well, Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, and he says that Jesus created everything we see and even the things we don't see. Paul goes on and he says, everything was created by him, through him, and for him. So Jesus is the creator of all things. Now we think about Father God, but actually the scripture says Jesus is the one who spoke the word, which was with God in the beginning, and everything's created. So in six days, Jesus, the author of a spoken word, creates a mature earth and everything that lives within it and even the things that live outside of it that you and I can't see or fathom. And why were they created? They were created because he's a creating God and it was by him, through him, and ultimately this last one was for him. Okay, now you're going, okay, what does that have to do with a new heaven and new earth? Well, if he's a creating God, then it means he can do incredible acts of recreation. Matter of fact, just kind of a glimpse into my mind, what was Jesus' very first miracle? He took water and he turned it into wine. John chapter 2 at Cana in Galilee. Now, let me ask you a question. I can take water and turn it into Kool-Aid. But that's not a redemptive act. What that is, is simply taking and adding something to another. Nothing spectacular about it. What Jesus does is a redemptive act. He takes water, which has created one thing, and he recreates it into something completely and totally new. That's an act of redemption. It's to take what's old and make it new through an act of regenerative work. It's restoration, it's renovation, it's all of these things that Jesus does. And so here's what I think, though I can't prove it completely, is that Jesus is going to take and he's going to regenerate aspects of this earth and the heavens and make them new. Why? Because he has the ability to do that. If he created everything in the first place, then he has no problem recreating it and leaving out the elements that are broken. That's just how I get there in my mind. You don't have to agree with it. We don't break fellowship over these non-essentials. At the end of the day, it may be completely new. It may be altogether changed. And you can agree with that, and we don't even have to argue about it. Because the reality is we don't know for sure. But that is what I believe. He goes on, and in Revelation chapter 1, verse 22, then he tells us what he sees. And he says, I see the holy city. A new Jerusalem 
uh, which is the city of God. It was coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, what you see is a spectacular display, and what the scriptures tell us is that no longer is heaven and earth separated or distant, but they actually come together. It's the city of God coming out of the heavens, and God will not only dwell in proximity to us, but we will also dwell with him, and he will be our God. Now, which is interesting because we live in a period where many people on the planet believe that God is distant and he's not proximate at all. Uh, many people believe that uh, there is a mystery that cannot be made known. Now we know from scripture that God in some ways was distant, but he came near through Christ. And as Christ dw dwelt in, in the incarnation, he came, he was the fullness of God and in him deity dwelt. Colossians 1, John chapter 1. As a result of that, God has made himself known. But what you see about God is most manifested in Jesus outside of the Old Testament. You would see him appear, like we mentioned last week, maybe in a burning bush to Moses, or on the mountaintop of Sinai to Moses, or through prophets. Um, he would appear in dreams and visions and to Samuel. Uh, he would appear through a cloak. I mean, there's a variety of ways that God would make himself known. But the reality is, is here in the new heaven and the new earth, it's no longer merely through dreams or visions or through burning bushes. It's not even just through the person, the work of Jesus, although that's the closest you could get to seeing God. You'll actually see his face. You'll be face to face with the living God and he will dwell among you and he will be your God and you will be his people. Now that alone is going to be a spectacular sight. But you see that he goes on and he says this in verse four. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So if you want qualities of the earth to pass away, it's certainly these things. In verse five, he says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And you see that word again, kainos. He's making everything new, altogether new. Can he use old things to make things new? Certainly. But he says, he also said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he says, it's done. Now, when you think about this idea of making things new and you see there's no crying nor pain, for the former things have passed away, and you, you, you kind of have a hard time imagining what that all looks like, that's when you begin to look through other places in Scripture. Now, what's interesting is Isaiah, the prophet, which was 700 years before Jesus, he wrote several passages about the new heaven and new earth. But if you have your Bible and you want to hold your spot and try to get to Isaiah, which is in the Old Testament, you certainly can, or if not, we'll put it for you up on the screen. You can make a notation of it and go back and read it for yourself. But Isaiah the prophet said these things about, a, about the new heaven and the new earth. And when you read it, it really does give us a glimpse of what God's going to do in the final heaven. This is what he says in Isaiah chapter 65. And then he says this verses 17 through 25. 
And as you read it, you may have more questions that pop up. And so that's okay. I'll try to answer a couple of them as we go. Uh, for the sake of time, we won't be here very long. He says this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. A gladness. The, the idea is it's going to be a fruitful, beneficial place. Verse 19 of Isaiah 65, he goes on, he says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people and no more shall be heard it in the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now that begs a few questions. Are you saying that in the new heaven there won't be children? Or you're saying that there will be children born in the new heaven? No. What you simply have here is imagery from the prophet Isaiah who is simply saying, listen, in the new heaven, the things that happen, which are not of natural order now, will be gone. Like it's not right for a young couple to bury their infant child. It doesn't seem plausible or right when you have a middle-aged man in the prime of his life who falls over dead. Do those things happen? Yes. In the new heaven and the new earth, they will happen no more. The reality is, is death and disease and the things that bring about the hardship and the pain and the toil and the strife of this life will be no more. Because in the new city, the city of God, the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven and touches earth, it's going to be a domain in which there is complete bliss and joy. It's a return to Eden before there was sin. So what is it that's distorted and perverted and confused the present reality we live in? It's sin. What is the very thing that God desires to recreate in us? A new life free from sin. And so now we do it and then we walk in the spirit hoping to be more like Christ, but we know that we carry around this body of death and we are groaning inwardly and outwardly, wanting something more. John says there is something more. Now he is not presuming to believe, and I think you could ask the question, well, are you saying that there's going to be children born in heaven? And we know from Matthew chapter 22 that there will be no marriage or those given in marriage. Why? Because we will be married to Christ, which changes a lot of things because you, then you go, okay, so then are, are, are you saying that I won't have a spouse? No, I'm saying you will have a spouse, but the spouse you will have will not be the spouse you have now. And so who will be your spouse? Well, the only one you'll be infatuated or in love with is Jesus Christ. Now, you might wonder then, well, will I know my spouse? I think I answered that question last week. I think definitively you could say yes, for sure. Um, I don't know to what length you will know, and we'll answer all of these questions and a ton more three weeks from now. So every question you can think of, we're going to give you a means next week to start entering them to us, and we're going to do a Q&A in week six. We'll answer all the questions you can come up with as we have time. Now, with that said... He goes on and he says this. He says um, in verse 21 of Isaiah 65, he goes, they shall build houses and inhabit them. So he goes, not only does the young man not die as early, he lives a long life. 
He goes, they shall build houses. They'll live in them. They'll plant vineyards. They'll eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree that shall be days of my people be, my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And then he says this, and they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. So he goes, the order will change. There's no longer you're going to build something and a thief breaks in and steals. You're no longer going to put in a hard, honest day's work and then someone undercuts you. He goes, those things will be gone. The calamity, the strife, the pain, the death, the weeping, the mourning, all of those things are no more. And Isaiah recognized that even before the Christ child was present. He goes on in verse 24, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Look at verse 25. It's a very intriguing thing. Will there be animals in heaven? Here you go. It says, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. What? Now, that's got to be some bliss, doesn't it? It goes on and it says, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Really? It goes on and says, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So what is it in the new heaven and the new earth? Isaiah gives us a glimpse of the very thing John does. They work in harmony together and they say it will be altogether different. And how does a lion and a lamb enjoy harmony together? When you no longer have the competing idea that the strongest man wins. You no longer have the very concept of the survival of the fittest. That's a concept that's gone. By the way, let me just notate this real quick. Those who believe in Darwin's thought, this is an added bonus, didn't even share this with the first service, it didn't pop in my mind. So here it is. Those who I believe in the ideas of Darwinism, they love the idea of the strongest man wins, the survival of the fittest, right? It's the whoever gets to the top of the pyramid actually rules the pyramid. What's interesting though to me, and just something to note and pay attention to, it's the, very, it's the very same people that love the idea of Darwinism that are also begging for equality in this day. They're the very ones who are saying, this is the way it's in created order, yet they're recreating the order and saying, you are not being fair with this subset of people. And you can't have both. But yet in the new kingdom, you will have harmony and order and it will be a return to Eden. Man will enjoy God and it seems to be that man will oversee and rule over the earth in which I presume to believe that in the new earth there will be many things we enjoy and animals will be a part of it. Now, I cannot say definitively that your dog Bo is gonna be there. I hope that doesn't break your heart. Maybe you can prove it. But that's, that's where we land on that. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 21. Let's pick up at verse 6. And I'm going to kind of fly through a few things here. It says this, And then he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then he says this, To the thirsty, I'm going to give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. 
The idea is the one who conquers, the one who perseveres, the one who is not easily sidetracked, the one who keeps his eyes in heaven and on heaven in the midst of a broken day will enjoy the fruit of a new day. That's what he says. And he'll be your God and you will be his people. But, verse 8, to the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, the, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And I read that and I go, man, that's a challenge because I happen to be cowardly and faithless at times. And I've done very many detestable things. I've murdered people in my heart. I've lusted after women. Um, I've not been much of a sorcerer, but I see idols in my life. I've lied to protect my own name many times. And I deserve the lake of fire. But by God's grace, he met me while I was a sinner and far off. And his son Jesus took and recreated a broken man into something new. A redemptive work he does in me, he can do in you. And here's what's incredible, guys. When you come across a friend and they're like, man, I can't go to your church, dude. I'm like, they're like, it's all going to fall down. Here's what you reply. Listen, it might fall down. I don't think it will because I haven't seen that happen. I've seen a lot of knuckleheads go to my church. <laughs> but here's the good news. If God can take an old earth and make it new, I don't think he's going to have a problem doing something new in you. Hold on, let me say it one more time, because that even rhymed. Y'all see that? <laughs> if God can take a broken old earth and old heavens and make them new, then he can do the same thing in you. He can do the same thing in me, because he's a wonder-working, redemptive God. You're never too far off. You've never done too much that God can't forgive. There's never been done something in secret that no one else needs to know about that God can't meet you there too. Because he's a redemptive God. And those who know him, their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Those who don't know him need to come to know him because the punishment according to Revelation 21 is severe. You may wonder, well, what about what about hell and when does that all happen? Listen, the final lake of hell that we joke about or that we talk about has not happened either yet. And you can read more about the judgment of saints and sinners in Revelation chapter 20, just a chapter earlier. You can see a whole section on the judgment, the white throne judgment that takes the wheat and the chaff and separates them, the goats and the sheep and separates them. I don't have time to dive into that today, encourage you to go back and see. Verse nine, it goes on and says this, then came out of the, uh, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And then he begins to explain the city's foundations and its gates, in which I don't have time to read that either. So you can go back and read that from verses 12 all the way down to 21. But look at verse 22. He said, I saw in the city, there was no temple in the city. 
For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So in the new heaven and new earth, as they touch one another, there is not going to be a meeting place, a gathering space in which you have to go to commune with God and others. Why? Because you'll be in full fellowship with God. There's no need for an additional temple because Jesus Christ will be there and he is the temple. That's the new heaven and new earth. He goes on, he says this, and the city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. So listen, as spectacular as the sunsets are, and as much as you love to see a new day dawn and the sun to rise in the eastern skies, listen, it will not come close to comparing to the future glory of a city who has no need of lamp or light. Why? Because Jesus is your lamp. He is your guide, which goes on. And it says it, verse 24, by its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day. So you come and you go into the holy city and the earth. And there will be no night there. You catch that? Underline that. Though there is no, there is no calendar in which there are days and nights. And they're governed that way. Why? Because Jesus is the light. Verse 26. They will bring in the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So the only people there are who know Christ. And those who don't know Christ and who have not been brought near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ will not be there. And you presume to believe, well, who will be there? Well, Jesus says, not as many as you think, which will be surprising to many of us. There will be people there that we didn't expect to be there, and there will be people that we expected to be there that won't be there. But we do know that he will be gathering people from the nations, every tribe, every tongue, every people group, every ethnicity. Because ultimately we're one race, human, and we're all sinful and we all need a redemptive work. And Jesus desires to do a redemptive, restorative, reconciliation work in every single people group throughout the world. Which is why as the church, we ought to do a greater job of highlighting people groups and praying that God's redemptive work goes forth throughout the earth. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 through 5, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. That's the water we oftentimes talk about. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on the other side of the river. There's the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. As you read this, go back and read Genesis chapter 2. Sounds awfully familiar. That there are rivers going through what is presumed to be a great garden. Um, No longer they're just paving stones. It's a street of gold. That's fantastic. But it also says there is the tree of life. What does not exist in the heaven today? The tree of life. What will exist in the new heaven and the new earth? The tree of life. What does it do? Well, it says that it yields its fruits each month. Twelve kinds, actually. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And the word healing there is a word in the Greek called therapia. It's where we get the word therapeutic or therapy from. So how do we have this constant regenerative work? It seems to be that it's not only the presence of God, but there is something special about the tree of life. And how do you get connected to the tree of life that was in the beginning but is no longer now happening, that eventually will happen in the new heaven and the new earth? I'll say it again as I said it last week. The only way to the tree of life is through the tree of Calvary. The only way you have a relationship with God is because of Jesus and his son. Notice, I didn't say it was because of Joseph Smith 
I didn't say it was because of Muhammad or because of Nirvana. I didn't say that it was because of, of witchcraft. I didn't say anything about Buddha or Hinduism. I didn't say anything about those things. The only way, Jesus says, is through him, which is the way, the truth, and the life. And he makes it clear in John chapter 14, after saying, I'm gone to prepare a place for you and I'll come back, he says clearly, there's only one way, and it's through Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. You want a regenerative work? You want the healing of the nations? You want the tree of life? You want the body of death to be gone and no more? Listen, it happens through Jesus Christ. In which he says this, no longer will there be any accursed, that's verse three of chapter five, but the throne of God, the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There's no more separation. We're clearly marked, we're his. It's gonna be a transfer from the book of life to our foreheads and night will be no more. Emphasis there, like you see this repetitively. There's no more night, no more darkness. Now, why is that said so many times? Well, here's the deal. We're scared of darkness. We're scared of what we can't see. We would always rather live in the day. Now, there's some of you like, no, oh, brother, I like to live in the dark. I'll tell you that's not natural. It's not God's design. Why? Because we are meant to live in the light. And in the final heaven, there will be no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever with him. Which is amazing. In the first heaven, clearly, Adam was mortal. But in the last heaven, we'll be immortal. And we'll learn more about what our bodies will look like. Come back next week. We'll talk about new glorified bodies. What's it look like to have a body that works itself around in heaven? What, what will we do? Just sing songs all of eternity? Come back and we'll learn more. But let me give you six quick takeaways today. I just encourage you to take some snapshots and not try to write them down. Here's the very first one. Listen, it will all end where it all began. So if it began in the Garden of Eden, we're returning back to it. It's a return to the Edenic promise. Number two, he will remove the curse of sin. That's our hope. Number three, the heavens and the earth will be made new. Completely new? I don't know. Restored? Maybe. At the end of the day, it will not be anything like it is today because the qualities that need to pass away will be burned up like fire and the qualities that will need to remain will remain and God will be our God and we will dwell with him. Number four, and we'll dwell in the midst of our God with the nations. That's a glorious thing. Get to like people. Maybe you're here like, I don't like people, pastor. Listen, that's not emblematic of a believer in Christ who Jesus says very clearly, want them to know you're my disciple? Love others. You can't love others if you don't like others. <laughs> Better get used to it because in the new heaven and the kingdom, you'll have the nations, tribes, tongues, and listen, people of different color. So if you have a problem with people of different color, you better start asking God to deal with it now. May he kill it in you. May he crush it in us so that we see people who need the redemptive, restorative work that we also required and still require every day. Uh, number five, the tree of life will be in our presence. And number six, uh, we will fellowship with God 
And in doing so, we'll do it without fear of a future deceiver, which begs the question, is there a possibility, Brandon, that we get to the new heaven, the new earth, and somehow the deceiver uh, crawls out of the lake of fire and kicks this thing all into motion one more time? If the word of God is true and stands forever, which I believe it is, no. We'll only deal with this agony once. And we praise God for that. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the redemptive qualities that we see in you. Thank you, Lord, that you don't just take water and turn it into wine. Thank you that you don't just take the lame man and make him walk. But Lord, you take the sinner and you forgive him and you clean him up and you make him new. And Lord, I resemble the words of Paul and reflect upon them in which he says, I am the chief of all sinners. Lord, the older Paul got, the more he realized he was in need of you. And I pray that that's true of each and every single one of us, that the older we get, the more we are aware of our need of you. Would you do a work in our lives? Because without you, it's impossible for us to be made new. Thank you for this message and for your word. And I pray that it goes forth and you use it according to your spirit's work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.